0: The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network, and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 51.
1: Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. So. Surrender is not an option. Attention, crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk we are all explorers driven to know what's over the horizon what's beyond our own shores
2: we would have helped you get home if you had asked that's who Starfleet is
0: Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I want to remind you to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube where you should hit the bell to get notifications just so you make sure you get every episode as it's available. And then you can carry it around with you on your, on your phone uh, and listen to it wherever it's convenient. And by subscribing, you help us uh, show that the, the show is popular and it, it gets up in the rankings and more people can find it. So we really do appreciate that. I also want to mention another show on the StarQuest Network called Secrets of Technology. If you're a Star Trek fan, you're probably into gadgets and technology. And so I want to recommend that you check that out. It's at sqpn.com slash technology. And it's a weekly show where we discuss the technology news of the day uh, from a particularly Catholic point of view. And we we feel like it's got some really interesting topics, and we've been covering. And uh, Father Corey is on it on occasion, uh, on occasion. And uh, we we've had a lot of fun producing it. So I encourage you to go check that out. So today, though, we're talking about uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, a movie that came out in 1982, three years after uh, the Star Trek the Motion Picture. And uh, a lot of people consider this the best. Trek movie of all of them, which we're up to 12, 13 of them now. Why do you Why do you guys think that is? Why is this the best Trek movie? Which is, I know we're kind of jumping to the end, but...
1: I, I don't know that it is the best Trek movie. I'd say it's one of the best. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I think, and I think it's one of the best because of the even-odd principle. <laughs> all of the odd-numbered Star Trek movies are inferior than they look at the results of of that and say how can we do better and then they do better for the even numbered ones and then they get complacent and then they do worse again and it just oscillates back and forth Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: that's i mean it's that's an interesting theory i mean it's kind of uh i i guess i would argue that this is
2: probably one of the more tightly written of the movies they didn't try to go as grandiose as they did with motion picture as they've done with as they do with some of the other ones, far- I'm looking at you, J.J. Abrams. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, it's you know it's very tightly written. It's very close. I mean, I I could have imagined this as like a, a two parter, two parter season ender. Yeah. Episode.
1: Mm-hmm. Are the J.J. Abrams movies even actually Star Trek movies? Well, that's a whole other story. Oh, that's a whole other argument a, for another day.
0: That is a debate for a future episode, yeah. <laughs> which we could we could uh, go into you know it, it will and will i mean I, I sort of throw this out there we'll tease this out as we go through about the popularity of this movie for for a lot of people this is the most popular uh this is their favorite of uh of the star trek movies and uh, i think it it comes out there's a the villain is good the, the like you said father Corey. the the it's 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 a tight story it's not all over the place we don't have the you know, the big, long stretches like we did in the, the motion picture, where they were seem to be fascinated by the special effects that they could do now. Um, the, the characters, in some ways, the characters go through some of the same uh, development, but the development is better in this mm-hmm. than in motion picture. Yeah, and that's one of the things
1: that the even the actors had severe criticisms of the first movie. It's like, where are the character dynamics between all of us? I mean, this was a character-based show. Right. And, and all of that is back now. Uh, we yes. have the established character dynamics. This is a character-driven story, not a special effect-driven story. And that's what makes it better.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, one of the things I, I like to talk about is just how this came to be. After the motion picture in 1979, it didn't do as well as they'd hoped. and no, it, did one make, of the re- it
1: did make money. It made $139 yeah. million, but it cost $46 million, which was just a crazy huge sum at the time. Right.
0: I know given today's budgets it's kind of it's kind of funny to think about yeah I mean, so one of the reasons that the Paramount uh, said well it's Gene Roddenberry's fault uh he had uh, so many rewrites on the first one that it just it it made the movie less and so they they pretty much took him out of any control he was given a a, a title of executive consultant but he really didn't have any role in making this movie. He could give comments, but they didn't have to take his comments. Apparently his first proposed storyline for this was the Enterprise crew going back in time to make sure the Klingons didn't stop the JFK assassination. Uh which <laughs> which is <laughs>
1: really not what you want for a major motion picture because it's like we're we're ensuring the Kennedy assassination happens.
0: Right. That's a well, that's that's bizarre a dour <laughs> ending. Yeah and and i i can see why he's going for it because he's it's city on the edge of forever was a very popular uh, episode where mm-hmm. the kirk had to make a tough choice about allowing a bad thing to happen so the timeline continues but you've done that show already
1: well <laughs> and and they'd also done um The Star Trek the Motion Picture before it was called the Changeling, Um, (laughs) right? But there's a difference. Uh, Edith Keeler is not John F. Kennedy. I knew John F. Kennedy, and Edith Keeler, you are no John F. Kennedy. also there's a love story there what makes that what makes city on the edge of forever so poignant is kirk has fallen in love with this woman and he has to let her die and that's not there with the kennedy assassination unless they're radically reconfiguring john f kennedy's love life
0: yeah (laughs) i I would like to see uh was it spock on a sniper rifle in uh somewhere around on the actually it would be spock on the grassy knoll that's what it would be Spock with the umbrella (laughs) shooting the bullet the magic bullet that's that's how it would be. Uh, so Oliver Stone does Star Trek. Uh, so that was that idea was rejected. So they brought in Harv Bennett, yeah, as the producer,
1: and, and they they came to him and said, "Do you think you could make a movie for less than forty six million dollars?" And he was a TV producer. He had been <laughs> right. one of the producers on the original series. So of course, <laughs> I can do a movie for a lot less than forty six million.
0: And in fact, the budget was originally was eleven million dollars for mm-hmm. a. A space movie which you know that's and one of the ways they did it was they reused some footage from the yeah. motion picture and and some mm-hmm. other things like that so uh, so the uh, he's he's the one who originally came up with the idea to bring back Khan to have uh kirk and have his son that he didn't know about to bring in the the ideas of dealing with aging and getting older Th- those were there from the beginning for bennett right. and then he he the 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 idea developed from there, and very quickly the Genesis project was added in, and then you know Captain Tyrell and Chekhov, Though they were there in the early parts of the story development, so Mm -hmm. they was there from the beginning.
1: And the aging thing was a way of acknowledging what they were trying to deny in the motion picture, which is this is just two years later after the (laughs) series, and everybody's still the same age they were ten years ago.
0: Right, And, and. so it was, and then there was some conflict over, okay, should we be developing a TV series instead of a movie? They kind of started having this back and forth at, at one point. And that's, I think, probably where the development of Next Generation probably was, uh, like the first ideas for that was around this time. And so the, you had this conflict here because th- this idea is Star Trek a, a TV property or is it a movie property? And we really had this dichotomy beginning here. Also, uh,
1: also, you have Gene Roddenberry. I mean, creating. Well, if I can't control the movies, I'll create a TV show I can control. Exactly right.
0: And so then they bring in uh, Nick Nicholas Myers as the yeah. director, uh, who does a great job. I think
1: he's and, al- he's also the writer, and you know he did a lot of the script, and he's a really
0: good writer. Yes, and, and he's not. At this point, a Star Trek fan. He barely knew Star Trek at this point, and mm-hmm. ended up you know watching a, a handful of things to, to, to kind of get uh, an idea of it. But latched onto this idea of of Star Trek being Horatio Hornblower in space. The C.S. Forrester novels about the Age of Sail and mm-hmm. the British sea captain Horatio Hornblower. And you really see that throughout this 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 story, this movie. Is really a a sea battle between two ships of the line yeah. chasing each other, including a you know, chasing each other into the fog, or in this case mm-hmm. a, the Mutara Nebula, Nebula. And 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 if if you want to see an example of this, if you actually uh, watch the movie Master and Commander, which is based on another series of books, which is actually I think superior to Horatio Hornblower, uh, the Aubrey Maturin series mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Patrick O'Brien, y- you will see a similar scene of ships chasing each other in the fog. Which I just thought was pretty pretty masterful.
1: Only what they do here, for the first time in Star Trek history, is they give us a 3D space battle. Yes. Um, right. Pre, up to this point, it's always been a 2D ocean surface space battle with no ocean surface. And right. now we finally get the ships moving in three dimensions and taking advantage of that fact as they're sneaking up on each other in the Mutara Nebula. hmm
0: Right. And, and then there there are aspects of this you don't want to spend too much time thinking about. The fact that they don't have sensors. Well, if you're flying around in space, you know, space is vast. You know, you, you the, the fact, the, the idea that they would kind of run into each other over and over again as yeah. they fly through the nebula, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, there are aspects of it you, you, that don't bear looking at too closely. But the story is superior enough that it works without if you, if you just kind of suspend your disbelief. Another
1: aspect of this that was kind of when, while we're talking about the behind the scenes stuff is uh, there was a big question of Leonard Nimoy's involvement, because initially it had been hard to get him to do the motion picture, and he was not in the original scripts for the motion mm. picture um, mm-hmm. or Star Trek phase two that the motion picture was based on. Um, but then he came back and he did it, and he enjoyed it enough that by the end of Star Trek One, he thought maybe I could do this again. And so they 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 brought him back. But he had a demand to to die. He did a uh, he 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 did a Han Solo on them. Mm-hmm. Right? Dem- demanded that his character be written out, and then he had second thoughts again. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> so you know this was this filming experience was so much better. Than the one he'd had on the motion picture, that it's like, okay, if this is how it's going to be, I could do this again, but I want something I want to direct. And, <laughs> yep. and so that's uh, so they start at the end of this one heavily hinting, this is not over. Spock is not right. he's not a hundred percent dead. He's only mostly <laughs> dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I don't. So, what again, do you have you know, to something live for? I read
2: years ago? And I haven't, I wasn't able to find anything to confirm this, but that, um, fans were so upset by the death as well that they went back and reshot it in. And it, that would also probably go along with yeah. Leonard Nimoy saying after the movie was done and shot and they'd finished him off, finished off Spock and said, wait a second, maybe I want to do this again. Well, between Leonard Nimoy saying that and then fans in the er, you know early screening saying, how could you yeah. kill this beloved character? You know, we talked about how beloved Spock was when we were talking about discovery, you know, how could you kill this beloved character where they then went back in and did the whole remember scene. Yeah. With the doctor,
1: right? That's an insert, right. as is the um, as is the shot of his coffin on the Genesis planet. That's they right. went back in and recreated that after primary filming was done.
0: Yeah, it's, it's right. I, I, I we'll talk about that as we get to it. Like uh, my reactions at the time as a as a young young man watching that in the theater, uh, how I felt about that. But yeah, it's it, it was it's uh, he, he clearly was this dichotomy of uh, you know I want to kill off Spock, but then i don't want to yeah and so there <laughs> there are major themes in this in this in this movie related to death and life yep. and getting old and no win situations and vengeance uh, we have lots of moby dick references in this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have lots of references to lucifer from paradise lost paradise lost thank you sorry <laughs> let's, let's see it for a second and so we have a lot of this literary uh, connection. I think that's part of it. There's the, this, these grand themes, this, these literary connections that makes the movie seem uh, uh, very more emotionally powerful, epic, yeah. epic and emotionally powerful and, and a bit of intellectual, you know, with that, that those references. So well,
2: half of half of Khan's references are references from literary, whether Shakespeare right, yeah. or Paradise Lost or any of that.
1: Yep.
0: And oh, we Melville, saw
1: we, right. we saw that shelf of books in the Botany Bay that he had obviously been reading for the last fifteen years.
0: <laughs> right. So all all of his quotes are from those books that he, the only ones to be able to read. By the by the, by the way, um, so if you
1: if you know the plot of Moby Dick, what it is is it's a tale of obsession. Captain mm-hmm. Ahab has um has this obsession with finding and killing he's a whaler he has this obsession with finding and killing moby dick who is this white whale and he's so um he's so bent on getting moby dick and avenging himself on moby dick that he destroys himself and his crew except for one guy who survives ishmael right and there's this moment so someone has to survive to tell the story so plot reasons um, yeah. <laughs> but there's this moment in moby dick where like at the end where he's found moby dick and they've they're fighting moby dick uh ahab has is like strapped to the body of moby dick and as he's diving ahab's arm he raises, and it's like he's beckoning his men to follow him into death, and which they then do. And so, in this movie, Khan is obsessed with revenging himself on James Kirk, which makes William Shatner a white whale. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can make well, a uh, well, well, to, to his parent.
2: appearance and. Make references yeah. to his appearance in recent years, where he's yeah. gained a lot of weight. But, anyways, <laughs> yes,
0: yes. <laughs> so, uh, let's talk about uh, about the difference between Khan in, in his original appearance in Space Seed, the original series episode, and Khan of the movie. I mean, Ricardo Montalban. Let's just say Ricardo Montalban was the best. I mean, he's just oh, a, yeah. what a what a yeah. great actor. I mean, I just I love his style yeah. as a as a, a leading man. And, and contrary
1: and, to rumor, he is not wearing a plastic chest in this movie. That is his real chest. Yes. He was he was that buff.
0: Yeah. And he was coming off of a, a, a long run as Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island, which is a very different character. Yeah. And he was very apparently very concerned that he not and not be doing that role again? Yeah. Like, could, that not.
1: Mr. Rourke is this very wise, affable, friendly guy, and yes. he's and Khan is not.
0: And and one of the things that the Montalban wanted to, to 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 really have come across is that Khan does not see himself as a villain. He is a hero doing what he does for righteous reasons. and, he, and that's and I think that kind of comes across that Khan sees himself as the hero as. I mean he's arrogant, he's condescending, has a way overblown sense of himself, he's obsessive, but he's he's rev- he's getting justice for Marla MacGyver's his wife, the the crewman who went traitor against the Enterprise in spacey and for the, his his people who have followed him uh, into exile. He's he's getting justice for them after being done wrong in this case. And, and frankly, he has a ca- he has a case. Nobody came to check on them they got stranded on this planet and nobody came back to make sure that they were okay. Yeah. Um, there is
1: that. Um, I don't fully, and I know it, villains don't see villains when they look in the mirror. Um, but he, I don't buy his, his rationale for, for this. I mean, when, um, Joaquin, his kind of second in command, comes to him and says at one point in the movie and says, "Look, we've got the Reliant. We have a spaceship. We can go anywhere in the galaxy. Right. Why right. do you want to mess with Kirk?" And his answer is, "He tasks me. He tasks <laughs> me, and I will have my revenge well, on him." To, I mean, right. to be
2: fair, he's been trapped on this very harsh world for fifteen years and went through everything with the change of the planet. You know, supposedly getting blown into another orbit and all that. It might have corrupted his mind just a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> maybe he yes. has one of those slugs wrapped around his cerebral cortex could be <laughs> <laughs> right so as but, the movie by, opens, by the way i've got to, got to tell a story about those slugs okay. by the way as our cerebral cortex are way too big for one of those things to wrap itself around so that's one thing you don't really want to think too much about but right. we have that you know horrific scene where they're putting them in their ears and it's really effective you know it's like oh, this yes. is horrifying this is really good body horror um and then we have Chekhov and Tyrell doing this kind of affable zombie thing where they're kind of on Khan's side and they're pointing out things to him. Like, you do know they're going to contact Kirk to confirm this order. And it's like, yeah, I'm counting on that. Um, and then Tyrell eventually sacrifices himself, you know, to, to save, uh to avoid carrying out the order to kill Kirk. Uh, So you get this effective struggle with him. And also the thing falls out of Chekhov's ear and they shoot it with a phaser and which I think I read Gene Roddenberry had a big problem with that because we should understand other life forms, but not this one. Um, (laughs) And I I may be misremembering that. So don't count that as true. Um, But, you know, Chekhov has this line where he's talking about, after, after he makes contact with the Enterprise crew again, he's saying, they put creatures in our bodies. And this is, this is just a personal thing. But so in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I grew up, one of the local businesses was called the Ozark Mountain Smokehouse. And it was a small family-owned chain that sold smoked meats, smoked cheeses, things like that. And I had a friend in high school who worked there And so he, one of his jobs would be to slice the smoked meat and everything. And, um, and it was kind of, you know, crumbly and weird looking and stuff. And so for one reason or another in, in my circle of friends, the line became an established running joke. They put smoked meat in our bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, <laughs> I know that's totally irrelevant, but uh, it's part it's, of my history, and I think of it whenever I see this movie.
0: It's it's a good line they put. Yeah. I, I, I would like to put some smoked meat in, but that's a whole nother thing. Uh, yeah. So let's let's. Oh, as the movie opens, uh, we we have this great James Horner soundtrack, which I just want to point out. It's a great soundtrack. Uh, really, it creates a lot of a lot of music for modern track comes out of this soundtrack. Let's put it that <laughs> way. The Alexander Courage music from the original series. St- sticks around, but a lot of the modern Trek music f- from series from Next Gen and on, and and the movies really builds off of this. And uh, so we we come up and we we have the the viewer, you know, first time uh, watcher of this movie is kind of shocked. We have this initial shock. It's not Kirk in the chair. It's Savic. It's this who is that? Rom- yep. So this Vulcan woman of some sort.
1: Yeah, and we learn in the novel she's half Vulcan, half Romulan, but they don't ever say that on screen.
0: <laughs> right exactly and uh we have this this uh scene where we see all of our our beloved ca- uh cast members our beloved ca- characters our crew are die you know McCoy mm-hmm. and and chekhov and Uhura all die and i and i and kind spock. of felt like and spock right and i kind of felt like this was a nod to uh, like to kind of circumvent the rumors of that right that there had been rumors that, oh, you know, we're getting, people are going to die in this one. Our crew is going to die in this one, you know, among the fans ahead of the movie. And so this kind of dispels or kind of lulls you into a false sense of, oh, that's what they're really referring to. Yep. Well, a nod at that. He, he,
1: he, that and also um, I, I, I remember reading in a, in a book I, I, where Nicholas Myers, I believe, talked about the reason that he put this at the beginning of the film. And because people knew that Spock was going to die in this, and they, he didn't want the audience fixating on that fact, just waiting for it to happen the whole movie and not right. getting into the story. And so his way of diffusing that was to visually kill Spock off right at the beginning. So, mm-hmm. so people think this is it. And then, they bring Spock back, and they can kind of forget about it for the rest right. of the movie and get into the story until it happens for reals.
2: Well, and it, it also allowed them to to establish the banter because again we were talking about how they wanted to make this much more character centric and not you know science fictiony special effects centric, and so they could immediately start with the banter of, of uh, Kirk walking dead? in, phys- <laughs> yeah, physician, <laughs> heal that, heal thyself,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. yeah and yeah aren't you dead <laughs> yeah i like that one yeah uh and so we have this the uh, the establishment of a pop culture reference that persists to this day yeah of the no win situation is a kobayashi maru which is the name of a freighter it's a, Jap- it's a japanese ship name really mm-hmm. yep. it's, it's something maru is a japanese ship name and mm. so we have this scenario that is presented to that apparently to command track cadets uh, pr- have to go through this uh, test or simulation where they have to they're, they're they they told they need to rescue this ship and there's no way to do it there's no way to, to beat the simulation no way to win and it's so oh how we react to the no win situation is you know an important test of character and integrity and leadership ability which is an interesting idea mm-hmm. and uh, kirk eventually says i don't believe that there's such a thing as a no win scenario is, is he right? Dum, is it, dum, is it arrogance? Is yeah. it the power of positive thinking? Uh, you know, <laughs> so it's it...
1: so you know that's what we're going to get on a larger scale in this story is for Kirk, a no-win scenario.
0: Right. Uh, I, I do like the fact that after the simulation is done uh, and Kirk Admiral Kirk comes in, um, she says, uh, any suggestions, Admiral? And Kirk says, prayers, Mr. Savick. The Klingons don't take prisoners. <laughs> that yeah. was a great line. It's one of my favorites.
1: By the way, a little bit on, so Japanese uh, ship naming conventions, Um, Maru, the word literally means circle, and it has a variety of suggested reasons why it's used for ships. Uh, The ship is kind of a little closed world or closed circle in itself. Uh, They built defensive circles around castles, and the ship kind of defends people. Also, it returns to port, and so it's sometimes seen as as a reference to a wish. For the ship to return, and it is um, it, it's uh, historically been given to civilian ships, not military ships. So yeah. this, that's why this is a civilian freighter. And Kobayashi is both a family name in uh, Japan, but it also means small forest. And so mm-hmm. this is the the small forest circle is the name of the ship. And it's it's not dissimilar to other ones like for example when we did um a big nuclear test in the Pacific back in the 50s um some of the fallout fell on a ship called the Lucky Dragon 7 and that hmm. became the basis of the movie Godzilla. Um okay. but if you in, in Japanese Lucky Dragon 6 is or Lucky Dragon 7 is something or other maru because it was a civilian fishing ship.
0: Huh. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, um, we have, so we have this simulation, we have Savick. Savick is an in- interesting character because this is really the introduction of Kirstie Alley as an actress. This is her first major role. Right. Uh, and she was very popular with the fans. She doesn't come back in, in Star Trek three, Robin Curtis replaces her in the role and she goes on to be in cheers and do some other things. And she's was you know, well known for, uh, but, uh, she plays this character very interestingly. She's mm-hmm. she's uh, some sort of protege for Spock. Some people thought she might be a love interest of some sort. Uh but 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 th- I don't think that See, bears I, out. I really you know. felt
2: it was just because a fellow fellow Vulcan.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Like kind of like kind of like a master Vulcan to a a junior Vulcan.
0: And even though she she has uh, the the Vulcan reserve, she also Uh, It it shows some emotion in this. In fact, at at Spock's funeral, spoilers, at Spock's funeral, (laughs) sorry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a 35-year-old spoiler, uh, she uh, cries. And Mm -hmm. some fans Mm -hmm. were kind of taken aback, but it's it's showing, I think, her half-Romulan side. Yeah, yeah. Also, she is hot in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, I was, uh, it was. It was 1982. Yes, I was yeah. about 14 or 15 years old. Yes, Christie Alley was the the uh, the very interesting young uh, woman in this movie, which is a, was a, an, an interesting casting idea. I mean, all of the uh, other actresses are, are much older, and so you you bring in your young male audience uh, with a with a, a pretty girl.
1: Yeah, and she's. I like the way the second way she wears her hair, and it's still regulation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Still regulation. That's right. Uh, so actually, you know, we should talk about speaking of uh, the way we're, we're dressed. The the difference from the first movie, the ship is pretty much the same, but mm-hmm. they've they've start, started introducing this idea of we change the uniform every time we have a new movie, yeah. and we have these new more military uniforms. The mm-hmm. the, the, the motion picture uniforms were the the hated pajamas. Yeah, the, you know yeah. the the Those jumpsuits. Are awful. And, uh, and these are much more uh, military-cut-looking uniforms.
1: They're textured. They're not just skin tights like, um, right. like the pajamas were. These are very textured. They have frills uh, of, I mean, different kinds of textures that add dimension right. to them. They have this very bold kind of red color. And this is also the origin of the flip between gold and red, Indicating the command track. Because in the original series, it was the gold, or actually in real life, green, but they came across on camera as gold. The gold shirts were the command officers, and the red shirts were the engineering and security officers. Well, here, everybody's in red, except on certain occasions, we have engineers and medical professionals in white, which Mm -hmm. I thought was an interesting tie in to how Discovery has medicals in white. Uh, But then. People's subdepartment, given that they're normally wearing a red top, um their their subdepartment is indicated by the color of their collar, and so um, so you have McCoy wearing a bluish green collar to signify he's in the life sciences department. Um, and then eventually, going forward, through the series of movies, red would become so associated with Captain Kirk in command. That right. they flipped when Next Generation came on, they flipped uh, it the color scheme so that uh, so that command officers wear red and engineering and security officers now wear gold.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and it's interesting. And then the cadets are have a, have a, a red collar, and but and the the, the they're double breasted these these outer mm-hmm. jackets. Yeah, uh, they have this interesting way that they you know Kirk opens it up, and if the the, the, cor- the corner flops down, I mean I'm not. I'm not big into fashion, but I just find it's an interesting, different look that you can create that, you know, in in the tense situation where Kirk's, you know, he he needs a little more air and he unbuckles that butt, the thing and it flops down and he's now a little more relaxed situation.
1: Uh, Revealing a white interior that can then get stained
0: with blood for added drama.
1: (laughs) Yep, exactly.
0: Exactly, exactly. With Mr. Preston's uh, bloody handprint. Uh, And they have these, uh, these away team jackets that they wear. Uh, which kirk wears his collar flipped up because you know
2: he's preppy. kirk mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> he's kirk uh so uh so i just so I thought i'd mention these these uniforms which we'll we'll see actually once in the next gen when we have uh fraser show up in an episode yep. of the next we see him a couple as, of times there's
2: a couple episodes in next gen where yes. they have them
0: uh sometimes they they mess it up and they don't have them wearing the under sweater and that sort of thing but But in general, that sort of symbolizes this era of Star Trek. It's become very identified with it.
1: Another aspect of the visual design that gets established, it's a much smaller element, but we have our first introduction of Romulan ale, uh, which is blue. It's blue Kool-Aid, basically. But it's illegal, (laughs) which we later find out is not for health reasons. It's not like super addictive or super disabling to drink this Mm -hmm. stuff. It's just for trade reasons.
0: It's, it's like, like, the more like Cuban, embargo. Cuban cigars. <laughs> yeah, it's like I was yeah. just
1: going to say it's like Havana cigars. Um but we get the Romulan ale that comes back and I love how the you know there's just this starfleet underground of Romulan ale drinkers even though it's technically illegal <laughs> just like there is an underground of Havana cigar smokers in the military even though those are technically or were technically illegal I'm not sure if they still right. are.
0: Yeah, uh, there is a line that uh, from McCoy where, it, I think it might get lost if you're not aware of the timeline of things, but as he presents it to Kirk, he says, uh, it Kirk says, oh, uh, 2283, huh? And, and McCoy yeah. Just, yeah, has to age a while. The, the year in this movie is 2283. Yeah. Like it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, br- it's brand joke. new in the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't age. So the other thing we we talk about is that this Spock is now captain of the Enterprise. Kirk is still an admiral from from the motion picture. Spock is captain of the Enterprise, which is now a training vessel. Uh, so there's some period of time. How long after the events of the motion picture are we? Uh, since at that time she was newly refurbished, so we're just maybe a couple of years later. I think it's, it's more a,
1: than that. I think they've completed the five a five year mission. A second five-year mission. second five-year mission, and, right. and we're after that. I'd have to check the, the timeline, but...
0: Because C- the problem with the timeline is, is that the, the motion picture occurs 18 months after the first, end of the first five-year mission. So that was, in our time, 1979, but it would have been about 1973, their time. And then we're 1982, you know, Kirk should not be old yet if it were just after that right. the motion picture. There a period of time has to have occurred. And I think it's generally understood, I don't think I don't know if it's canon or not, but it's generally understood that there's a whole nother set of another five year mission that took place yeah. in between. So uh
1: it looks like the events of the motion picture are set in twenty two seventy three and this is well it says actually according to the timeline I'm looking at, it says Wrath of Khan is set in twenty two eighty five. So that would mean oh. Romulan ale is a couple of years old. Uh, okay. But it looks like 12 years after the motion picture.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. So that and that will then give us a Kirk of this age of William Shatner's age at this mm-hmm. point. It kind it's of inter- makes up for the time.
1: It's interesting that even though Spock is the captain now, he's never taken the Kobayashi Maru test. I guess maybe they yeah. thought it wasn't necessary since he's a Vulcan or something. Although Savik has to take it. No that's true. Yeah. But she if <laughs> yeah. she's half Romulan then she's got a more emotional side or something or okay, it's just a slip in the writing, but except- said <laughs> <laughs> plot reasons, well, that's why. Well, the
0: other thing is is the other cadets now know the trick so they can't ever take the test. The other cadets who were on the bridge at the time. Yeah. So, uh so uh we have this theme Kirk says at this point how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. And that's yes, this is a you know foreshadowing yeah yep. and message coming also, in sir it's also has to do it's not just with uh spock dying but it has to do with a little bit with kirk getting older he's getting older he's dealing with existential questions of what it means to to get older uh spock gives him a birthday gift of a tale of two cities mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: which has the it's a uh, there was the best of times of the worst of times and you know were w- you trying to tell me something spock and n- nothing more than just that birthdays apparently are the best of times aren't they yeah. Uh, so th- there's this aging thing going on.
1: Yeah. Which So the fact it's Kirk's birthday sets us up for him contemplating aging and the conversation right. he has with Spock and then with McCoy, where McCoy brings him as a birthday present, a pair of reading glasses because he's, <laughs> right. he's allergic to retinax. And, um, and I, my, I thought, how does McCoy know what his pre- eyeglasses prescription is? And I thought, oh, duh, medical officers. He's got, he's got access to his file.
2: Exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> well, speaking of which, these are my new glasses I'm wearing today. I just got Ooh, some of them just today. That's nice. cool. a very, a little serendipity a coincidence there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, I like the view of Kirk's apartment. We have, we get to see mm-hmm. Kirk's uh, apartment home. He is apparently his home decorating is, uh, models of sh- sailing ships. <laughs> Flintlock pistols, uh, walking sticks, and armor. Those are the, the, the key elements of his home decorating. And I like the, how they're trying to convey something about him that way. This is
1: basically what they, what they found in King Tut's tomb, except it was bows and arrows instead of flintlock pistols. Well, they, al- <laughs> yeah. they
2: also had a, a classic, an ancient computer, which actually at the time the movie oh, was yeah. filmed was an older computer. It was a Commodore PET 2001, which oh, would have been yes. about three, four years old. But, of course, the interesting part is at the same time this movie was coming out, William Shatner was advertising the Commodore VIC-20
0: in commercials. Wow. Yeah. So that really kind of, for some of us, that really sets this movie in a a period in time. Uh, There's a a fun line here where McCoy is kind of needling him about, you need to get your command back, get back out there before you really become old and part of this collection of antiques. Right. Kirk says, don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and McCoy has that look at his face like, what? I, I'm not mincing words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really love that line. And
1: it's the first time I encountered that. And I've subsequently encountered it a lot. You know, Sometimes if I'm really frank about something, people will say, don't mince words, Jimmy. Tell us what you really think.
2: Yep. And,
1: <laughs> and I wonder, what did Nicholas Meyer create that line for this movie? Or does it have a longer history? And he just used it, and I don't know the answer.
2: I, to that question. I have a, I have feeling that seems like one of those phrases that's been around for a while. You know, you know, yeah. you know someone would say, mm-hmm. "You know, don't hold back, don't, yeah, don't mince words, don't, you know, j- tell us what you really think." You know, I, 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 right. I have a feeling that probably has a fairly long lineage.
1: I'm, I'm sure there was something equivalent to it, but the mince words, right. I just, I wonder if that form of it was something Nick Myers came up with, but I don't know. Right, I'd have to research it.
0: So uh we we then shift to uh the the beginning of the plot for this movie the plot device which is the USS Reliant which uh this ship mo- I'm again I'm a ship geek this ship model becomes very important in all of Star Trek for, to into the future this they use reuse the Reliant over and over again in Next Gen and in the movies uh becomes a very important part of Trek history technology and history and so we have the Reliant and we have uh, Captain Terrell who would later on Next Generation play uh, Daython. Mm-hmm. Dharmak and Dharm- Jalad at Tanagra. Exactly. Huh. And so he's, uh, he's a key to, to a, a future role there, a very important role there. And we have his first officer, Pavel Chekhov, who has yeah. moved on. And, and Glad this to is, see someone has moved on in their career. Exactly. This is great
1: because <laughs> this is what happens in the military. You do not spend your whole c- career on one ship with the same rank. And so it's really great to see Chekhov has been promoted and he's, he's now the first officer of a completely different ship.
0: Along with, uh, by the way, Mr. Kyle, Kyle, who's now a commander's Commander's officer. Yes. Mm He was previously the the transporter tech on the enterprise. So good to see him there. They're uh, on this mission that they're looking for a lifeless planet for the Genesis project. Uh, So Starfleet is working with these scientists to, to find a planet on which to conduct this test.
1: Yeah. And it's like, this is one of those things you can't think about much because there are tons and tons of lifeless planets and, and even like the planet they end up using regular one, right under the regular one space lab, it's a lifeless planet. And in the Genesis briefing file, they say we anticipate doing this on a lifeless moon or something. Well, then why do you need this big survey? It's going to take six months.
0: I think the idea was that they needed to find it with very particular conditions—a uh, mm. planet in a particular orbit with a particular kind of sun, with a particular kind of conditions. Which is why they later on, why the the Genesis planet in Star Trek Three is unstable. No, is that was because it proto matter. Was it because of the proto matter?
1: Yeah, it was because David cut corners in his in the in the science
0: that's right that's right yeah, now that the, the, you mention it
2: yeah the initial explanation was because they were worried about existing life but that later come out that something worse going on
0: mm-hmm. right 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 yeah you're right then then it yeah then it, if I, I always thought of it as they need to be a particular kind of planet in a particular kind of mm-hmm. system that sort of thing and kind of thought of it that way well and, and that's reasonable headcanon and they could have said that on screen they just didn't right uh so so it's the Genesis project. Let's talk about that. The word Genesis, mm-hmm. uh it's a, obviously a biblical allusion to the book of Genesis mm-hmm. where we're creating uh where God creates everything from nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mm-hmm. kind of f- fudge it a little bit. It's life from lifelessness. Mm-hmm. So not from yeah, nothing. That's <laughs> their gloss on it. The yeah. the
1: word in Greek Genesis means beginning. So
0: right. And there's a clear concern on the part of The scientists they they know this could be used as a weapon. I mean, you think about it's it's and this kind of connects to something that was topical at the time in the news, which was the idea of neutron bombs. Now, Mm. with an atomic bomb or a nuclear bomb, you drop it, it wipes everything out, it radiates everything, everything is destroyed, including the people, but also the buildings and whatever. And the neutron bomb was this new idea where what if we dropped a bomb that only killed the people but left the buildings and the infrastructure and everything in place for us to move in and take over. People were horrified by this uh mm-hmm. justifiably, but I mean, this is a, it's we a want horrific... the buildings destroyed too, not just the people <laughs> well, right right but <laughs> but you're right it, it sort of brought home uh, the the horrors of of nuclear war, these mass weapons of mass destruction uh but so the the Genesis weapon was a sort of analog to the neutron bomb where you you're, you kill all the people on a planet, and the, uh, when you're done, you have a fresh new planet to work with. Yeah. You, know, you can imagine if the Klingons had gotten a hold of this, it would have been a bad thing.
1: Which they then try to do in the very next movie. And I, exactly. I, like, I like how the fact that just right off the bat, before we even know what Genesis is, David Marcus is saying, you know, this could be used as a weapon. And mm-hmm. we have this whole Cold War theme of, you know, scientists being manipulated by the military, which is something that, you know, really, I mean, that had been playing out in real life since World War II. Uh, right. with the Manhattan project and so um it really played into the cold war themes of the time which were still going on in the 80s when the cold war was really tense
0: yes and, uh, and so that that's it's it really i think another reason why this kind of came home to people because it was these weapons of mass destruction sort of ideas and so uh Tyrell and and Chekhov beamed down to this planet city alpha uh, 6 uh, they, they think they say it's because, City Alpha Six, right? And it, they because it might be it's a, 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 a suitable planet, but they got a blip on one dino scanner, and they have to go check it out see if it's something that can be transplanted or something. Here's the problem: so Kirk dropped Khan and his people off on City Alpha Five, mm-hmm. and he, along comes Reliant, and they think it, that this planet, which is City Alpha Five, they think it's City Alpha Six because City Alpha Six exploded and knocked city alpha 5 into city alpha 6's uh, orbit. orbit. Yeah. Uh, why would you think this is seti alpha 6 if there's only 5 planets? <laughs> like mm-hmm. if a planet exploded, where where's the huge
1: asteroid belt that would have resulted mm-hmm. from that? And how right. how why isn't the asteroid belt in the same orbit as seti alpha 6?
0: It, exactly. This this is the pro- and uh, why are there? I mean, are there records in the in the computer to say? By the way, warning: uh, yeah. Megalomaniac Maniac is on this planet <laughs> along with his people. Yeah, do not, do I mean, not
2: approach. Say yeah. Alpha Five might be a good idea. Just don't even go near the solar system.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. And Any any time they are coming into a solar system, there should be some kind of pre-mission briefing, and and they apparently haven't had one. They just sailed in here. <laughs> Didn't check any records, and, and and didn't count the planets, and didn't look for an asteroid belt, and none of this bears <laughs> thinking about.
0: Right, right. We This is what else we have to suspend so we can get to the good story. Uh, also, <laughs> fa- fans uh, have, have all, all had lots of anguish over the fact that in the original episode with Khan, Space Seed, first season, Chekhov did not show up in Star Trek till the second season. So how could Khan recognize him? Well, obviously... Chekhov was on the ship. He just yeah. wasn't on the bridge yet.
1: Right, yep. and that's that's the obvious explanation. I, I don't think they need to give us one. Um, Walter Walter Koenig has talked about how I knew when we were filming this scene that I wasn't on during that episode, but I kept right. my mouth shut.
2: <laughs> and, <laughs> and there is a great quote from him though that he says that the reason why Khan knows him is because Chekhov, who was kind of an underling, kept Khan from the bathroom for too long, and that's why he knows who he <laughs> was.
0: Yeah, he gets him out of the bathroom <laughs> while he was guarding him or something. So that I remember you, Mr. Chekhov. <laughs> mm. So the they fight. You know, Chekhov recognizes the name of the the ship from uh, Seatbelt Bay. Botany, Botany Bay. Bay. We've got to get out of here. <laughs> yep. Oh man, yeah. he, uh, Walter getting des- delivers some great lines as Chekhov. Just so memorable the way he does it. Uh, this it's Star Trek for the nuclear vessels. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but
1: by the way, another thing that we can't really think about much is so if you have this colony of twenty-something people here on this planet, they've got to be eating something. You can't have a colony of twenty right. people and not have a functioning biosphere that that's supporting them. Those I can little, uh, only guess it's maybe underground or something. And they say that the the mind control creature is the last surviving life form on the planet well that can't be literally true unless they're eating those things exclusively in which case what are those things eating yeah um and so i'm assuming they mean animal life form there's got to be plants or fungus or something that that the humans can eat but if there's all if there's an ecosystem on this planet even if it's been damaged they should be picking that
0: up from space right and and i mean maybe they had hydroponics in one of the cargo containers or something but yeah, yeah you're right it's something's got to be making the oxygen they're breathing you mm-hmm. know, yep. that, so uh well uh, so one of the other things people asked about they've been on this planet for 15 years why do all of khan's followers look like they would have been 12 when they were stranded <laughs> they
1: have extra long lifespans or something yeah they're genetically they're t- engineered
0: except yes. khan khan looks except like he's the right khan. age yeah yes yes he does uh, but we'll pro- we'll probably get into this when we talk about Space Seed, about the, bot- the name Botany Bay comes from a penal colony that was uh, in Australia back yeah. in the days when people were yep. transported from Britain to Australia wh- wh- uh, as which prisoners. Is,
1: which is what happens when um, Khan and his group leave Earth. They're basically criminals going into exile, exactly. going into transportation to keep them away from Earth.
0: So I found it interesting that Khan keeps these SETI eels that that give you mind control powers as pets. Uh, di, did he use them on his own people or something? Like, what was he anticipating? Someone would show up that he could use it on. I, so. I know.
1: Why are they keeping it? I mean, maybe it's just a pet to them. To be, um, yeah. maybe it's a research project for him or something.
0: Because every supervillain needs to have some sort of scary pet, like yeah, like a like a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or dark people dar- dar- <laughs> with sharks with laser beams on their heads. So then we, we switch back to Kirk. He arrives at Enterprise. He's going to do an inspection. By the way, I not yep.
1: only love the way Chekhov does the Botany Bay line,
0: yeah. I love yeah. the
1: way as soon as, he, as soon as Tyrell says, I've never even met Admiral Kirk, and Khan is,
0: Admiral. admiral. <laughs> admiral. Oh, really? Admiral. He says yeah. it like
1: four <laughs> times. <Yeah. laughs> he's just so taken with the idea he's an admiral now.
0: Well, and, and he's so self-centered that he's like, oh, they promoted him for what he did to me. As if like the only reason that Kirks exists is because of Khan, and uh, so yeah. uh, I thought that was effective writing. Yeah, and he's he's very self centered.
1: It's like you never told the the story at, to amuse your captain. You know, you can't believe <laughs> exactly. Chekhov hasn't just been telling the legend of his encounter with Khan.
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh, so uh, so we have this, and, and of course, you mentioned the eels being shoved into their ears. Uh, they actually made these big. By the way, these big. Um, Models of both uh, uh Walter Kinnick and Paul Winfield of their ears that they had where they the thing slid in, so they don't, back in the don't day look it looked real. effective <laughs> yeah back in the day it looked more effective than than now it yeah it looks fake, so Kirk arrives um on board he comes he comes through the uh the the uh the boarding port where the uh, torpedo bay is uh, for an inspection, and he encounters Scotty and he says, Mr. Scott, you old space dog, you're yeah. well yeah. This and, and guys, all had a weep out of, of shore leave, and uh, <laughs> this is actually a reference to Jim James Dewan, who actually had a heart attack uh, before mm. this, and and had recovered mm. f- afterward, and so this was a little inside joke about get, you know good to see a Jimmy Dewan back on back on the stage. Yeah. So but that, that, that the that implication
1: in universe is he
0: got drunk. <laughs> yes, that yep. well, is Scotty. You know, yeah. we we do we still have that that triple incident. <laughs> the, Bar fight with the Klingons. Uh, So uh, we have this engineering cadet that Kirk stops and and talks to Peter Preston, who we we, you know foreshadowing again uh, Mm -hmm. in the novelization. Peter Preston was Scotty's nephew, which is why, and I think in original in in versions of the script, uh, which is why Scotty is sort of looks kind of proud of him and Mm -hmm. very interested in what's going on with him, and why later on Scotty carries him to the bridge after being injured, as opposed to all the others are injured. So uh, there is a, a relationship here, yeah. Um, and
1: that they filmed those scenes too, but they didn't include them in the theatrical cut. But they were restored in some later editions.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen that
1: one. Yeah, because
2: there is a director's cut you can you can rent from Amazon or buy from Amazon.
0: Oh, okay. Okay.
1: There, incidentally, there. So we also get uh, when Kirk is walking around. You know, Savic. We have this moment between Savic and Spock where they're talking in Vulcan. And this is the first time we get a sustained conversation. And it's not long, but it's a sustained conversation in Vulcan. And unlike Star Trek, the motion picture, where they created Klingon as a real language for this um, Mm -hmm. and published it and it made lots of money. It's like, oh, well, that can only happen once. We can't do Vulcan. And so they they didn't let him do Vulcan. Um, But the, the linguist in me just can't help. Listening to what they're saying and analyzing it, um, Spock is. You know, Savik says basically, Kirk kind of surprises me, and Spock's like, "Well, what about him? He's so human." And Spock says, "Nobody's perfect, Savik. But um, the way he says it, the way he says her name is Savikam, and it's like, "Ooh, Vulcan has vocative markers to indicate you've got a little, you've got a little post position there, the am at the end of Savik." that's like our equivalent in english of oh like oh oh joshua what are you doing or um in arabic ya um so it's like okay vulcan has post positive vocative markers that is awesome
0: <laughs> so the klingon in this was created i mean the vulcan in this was created by the same guy who who in in star trek 3 yep. would create klingon language mark Okrand. yeah and he actually um Dubbed in the Vulcan dialogue here for apparently for Spock, uh mm. since the actors had been f- had already been filmed talking in English. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think, he, I think- he
1: wrote the dialogue to fit their the to fit their lips, the pattern right. of their lips were making mm. in English, and then they had the actors do the dubbing. I believe
0: that's right. Yeah. and uh so yeah, he's he did the Klingon in Star Trek three, five, six. And he even did some uh, uh, Romulan and Vulcan for the J.J. The Abrams Star Trek film in 2009 uh, that was in that movie. So he is, he, you know, he is the Star Trek the, language cl- guy, the Star Trek <laughs> language guy. He's and he's probably among the foremost of what is there's a there's a word for um, the made up languages, people, uh, I figure what they call it. Constructed languages. But, constru- thank you. Constructed I mean, he's really kind of considered among the the foremost after Tolkien, of course. Uh, so that that was interesting. So uh, we have this moment where uh, they're going to take the Enterprise out, and Spock in the center chair turns and asks Savick to to take the ship out and you know take the con as they take Enterprise out of space dock. And Kirk has this sort of stricken look in his face, and McCoy offers him a tranquilizer. And I've never really understood oh, what this was about.
1: It's it's a reference. It's a callback to an earlier line where they're coming over in the shuttle. Kirk tells Sulu he's glad that Sulu's going to be at the helm for three weeks on their training mission because he doesn't think these kids can steer, meaning the new cadets. And so right. then when Spock says to Kirstie Alley, "Have you ever taken a ship out of dock before?" and she says, "No," that's what makes Kirk nervous.
0: Although, it's still Sulu at the helm. I know. He's, still, so it's he's, one of the he's not going to fly it into we,
1: something. We can't think about, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, I don't think Sulu would ever take a command from the from the uh, fresh out of the academy lieutenant and fly something into something. Yeah, you know, I have to wonder, is there some, now that I think about it, is there some inspiration in SAVIC for uh, Michael Burnham in Discovery? Oh, interesting. In Maybe. It'd be something know. interesting to think about. Uh, and, and, if, and if we think about Spock, if now we know what we know about, about uh, Michael Burner being his foster sister, if we want to create some of this idea of uh, this connection, maybe Spock sees in Savick a little bit of what he saw mm-hmm. in his sister, Michael.
1: And also later, uh, Lieutenant Valeris.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Which we'll, we could talk about that in Star Trek Six, where that was supposed to be Savick and they got changed at a, at mm-hmm. a late date. Mm-hmm. Uh, so interesting. So uh, we have this um, moment where where Spock says to Kirk, "Commanding a, a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material." You know, he's really telling Kirk that you really like, just like McCoy was. You need to get back in the center chair. This yeah. is, this is what you're you, t- becoming, Admiral, and sitting behind a desk is, was was a, a bad idea. Uh, and then we have this. Uh, we've got this message from. Regular one. Oh, we, the, the we also scientists.
1: Have, in that conversation. We also have the first discussion of the needs of the many outweigh outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Mm-hmm. And in this right. case, it's Spock is telling Kirk, "If we're going to go into into uh, the field, this is not just a training mission anymore. The senior officer, you need to be in command because the needs of the whole crew outweigh my needs."
0: Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to mention. Was the reason that they go- that he says that line is because they've gotten a message from Carol Marcus that someone is coming to take Genesis. This was Khan's uh, ploy to get uh, Kirk to regular one so we could attack him. And and it's interesting to contrast Spock's response to Decker's response in the motion picture. Decker was the captain displaced out of the center chair. He Mm -hmm. resented Kirk for it. Yep. uh that that he that he was had to make way for him and so we have this very interesting different take from Spock uh you
1: know no no this is your seat you're proceeding from a false assumption i have no ego to bruise
2: yeah well right of course you know talk about plot holes how how did khan know that kirk would be the one come running when the call was made because of course he's an admiral all he has to do is pick up the Phone quote unquote the the communications device and say, Right, send a starship to check this out.
1: But as usual, the Enterprise is the only one in the sector, so it has (laughs) to be the one to go.
0: There's like there's either 8,000 ships in Starfleet, as we learned in in, uh, Discovery, or there's two. (laughs) Yep, by by the way, one or the other. It's nice to
1: see Spock's quarters. He has this 1970s disco mirror kind of thing with receiving (laughs) lights there, I guess, to to reflect on. And um, he's got an animal skull that looks like it has really long teeth, and I'm wondering—is that a celot skull? Mm-hmm.
0: Could be. Maybe that's his pet. Maybe it's his pet. Although that would seem to be an emotional decision to keep the skull, not logical to hang on to it. But yeah, we'll we, we'll see.
1: <laughs> By the way, so with the the thing that gets Kirk involved is they have this phone call. Although they and they do this twice in the show, they call this com pick. Get yeah. on, get on the com pick and talk to Doctor Marcus, and it's like, guys, come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> call call Doctor Marcus, or yeah. you know, something like that. Um, but they get this com pick from Doctor Marcus, and it's all staticky, and then it gets cuts off. And Uhura tells Kirk it's been jammed at the source, so <laughs> that should tell them something really bad is happening, and they should have their guard up more than they do when they go right.
0: there. Right. Uh so Kirk is is trying to figure out what what to do and he he says to McCoy and Spock you know who you know, why would you know why why would someone be going after Genesis and and McCoy wants to say, what's Genesis and so they have this 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 grant video basically it's a kickstarter video yeah, yeah. for the Genesis project which the, we when you look back at the time I mean it looks rudimentary mm-hmm. the CGI of this video was considered groundbreaking at the time and in fact I remember seeing something about the rendering of this video took weeks at ILM. Well, and it was mm -hmm. it was the
2: the first major computer generated three D scene in any major motion picture at all. Right, that had never been. There had been computers like graphics. You know, we'd seen in other you know the previous Star Trek and then Star Wars had some computer graphics, but to have this fully rendered three D scene like that was again it
1: was groundbreaking
2: it was, that was that was yeah, the beginning of the, yeah. the, the the 3d rendering movement
1: and because it's presented as a computer simulation, it's okay that it doesn't look real
0: right. yep. <laughs> I also I also like that the the retina scan uh, as security which again this is very I don't think i I'd ever seen this before like use the idea of ret, uh, scanning your retina as a mm-hmm. fingerprint uh it, it is a much longer process than even today. Uh, which I look at my phone, I have Face ID on my phone, and it's fairly instantaneous. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I kind of, it's just amazing to see how far even our vision of the future has come I, from I, that time.
1: I am just glad we don't have to press our retinas on an ink pad and roll them on a on a on a piece of paper.
0: <laughs> that would be painful, yes, <laughs> and messy. Yeah.
1: Uh, hey, 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 I got a question, guys. So we're we've been going for about an hour now, and we are not close to done. You want to make this a two parter? Yeah, okay. we could, uh, we yeah, we could we could split it
0: here and uh, uh we'll make this into a two part episode of uh Secrets of Star Trek because we do we this we do want to give do this movie justice. So let us know. What do you think so far of what we're talking about with Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan. Uh you can always contact us by going to SQPn.com slash trek or the SQPN Facebook page and leave us feedback there, or you can send us an email to Trek at SQPn.com. And like Jimmy said, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the second part of our discussion of the Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan.
1: Star Trek Part Two, Part Two.
0: <laughs> we do a lot of part ones and twos of things lately. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing these secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and live long and prosper. Uh, Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. No, thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, the old Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish That is best served cold It is very cold in space